Thanks, AJ. Well, good morning to you, all right? Yeah? Okay. All right, all right. Don't worry about it. No more greetings. Let's get to it. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Uh, it's our joy to have you here with us this morning. Uh, we have been in a study of the book of 2 Corinthians. So uh, grab your Bibles. There should be one in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, grab that and find 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We closed uh, the first major section of this book last week when we came to the end of chapter 7 and Paul had a wonderful good report from Titus who was uh, working as Paul's uh, representative in the life of this church. Paul uh, sent Titus with a letter of rebuke and Titus and Paul met up after Titus had delivered that letter to the Corinthian church and they had a conversation and we closed chapter 7 talking about uh, Paul's great confidence and great rejoicing in the life uh, of this church and how this church responded to his rebuke. The church uh, mended the breach in their relationship by responding and doing exactly what Paul asked them to do. And we closed chapter 7. If you just look at one sentence above uh, from chapter 8, you see with Paul saying there in 7.16 that I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So Paul is in a place of great, uh, where he's been distressed in the early part of this book about whether or not the Corinthian church is going to respond, whether or not they're going to kick out those, those uh, false teachers in their midst. What Paul, uh, where Paul is emotionally, as we make the turn in this book into chapters 8 and 9, uh, is he's on the up. Emotionally, he's excited. He's encouraged. Titus was refreshed. The church responded well to him. Paul is encouraged because the church rebuked those who were in their midst that were questioning Paul's uh, qualifications and the gospel that Paul was preaching. And now this church has come back to be reunited with the apostle who brought them the message of salvation. And in, in Paul's wisdom, what Paul is going to do now is turn and address uh, two chapters for us for the next several weeks where he is going to address giving and money. Uh, and what he's going to do, he's going to show you really the brilliance of God's word. He's going to take two somewhat disparate ideas and he's going to bring them right together. Paul is going to take grace, which is the white hot center of the Christian faith. Grace, which is how we are saved God who in his kindness to us sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and we receive what Christ has done for us by faith and trust in what he has accomplished to make us right in our relationship with God. It's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If somebody asks you, how do you know that your relationship with God is in a good place? It takes a Christian that long to get out the name of Christ, to say, I am not good with God unless Jesus died for me and paid the price for me on the cross. Amen? Now, who doesn't like the message of grace? And what Paul is going to do as well is not only take the idea of grace, but then he's going to take the idea of money. What would you rather hear a sermon on, grace or money? Yeah, grace. Who doesn't? I don't want to talk about money that much. But what Paul is going to do is brilliant here. This isn't a message on greed, per se. It's not a message on tithing. It's not a message on investments. It's not a message on saving. 
It's not a message so much really at all about what to do with our money. This passage is all about the heart of the individual that handles money. And Paul is going to take money and grace and smash them together so that we would see how we ought to give. And Paul is going to root his exhortation in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So this is a fantastic passage. I'm so excited about it. I've been thinking about it all week. And uh, I think you're really going to grow as a result of this passage. All right? So let's pray, ask God for his grace, and then we'll get into it here. Father, we love you. As we have just sung and confessed together that Jesus is better than our sorrows, than any comfort, than we would say here, Father, anything that I have, any treasure that seeks to lay claim on our hearts, we say with faith-filled confidence that Christ is better than any of those things that are warring for our affections right now. Any of those things that cause us extraordinary worry or anxiety or uncertainty about our future. Father, as we look into this text here this morning, we pray that we'd be reminded again of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That you'd uproot things in our hearts that need to be exposed and that we'd look away from ourselves, away from the treasures that, uh, Father, seek control of our hearts and that we'd look away from ourselves and to you. So, Father, bless us as we study and we learn here this morning. We'll ask for this in Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Take a look there. Y'all there? 2 Corinthians 8? Say yes. Yes. Okay, good. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers. Now, Paul starts... um, arguably, with something that the Corinthian church doesn't know. Paul is a traveling missionary, right? He's, he's started by, the, by preaching the gospel, and congregations have formed. And what Paul does throughout his first, second, and third missionary journey is plant the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, what the gospel does through its preaching is it creates a people. It creates churches. So the wake behind Paul are these communities of faith that believe that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus has rose and ascended into heaven. And there are these communities that are all throughout, you know, modern day Turkey and here that we're going to look in, in Greece as well that are a result of Paul's initial call to plant the gospel in a community of people. And what you have the advantage of here in Paul's ministry is that he has a way of moving throughout these churches and seeing the problems that are in the churches and seeing the blessings that are in the churches. Now, has the Corinthian church had some problems? Have you read 1 Corinthians? The Corinthian church is a struggling church, not financially. The Corinthian church is in a upper middle class kind of area. Significant opportunities for economic advancement, for uh, influence in their culture and in their community and in their city. And the problem the Corinthian church has is that the culture on the outside finds its way on the inside. And the culture of the city, the culture of the nation, starts to press and influence the culture's or the culture that exists within the church. This is a problem in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We've been dealing with that for the past seven chapters with these false teachers who come in with a different gospel. But Paul in his missionary journeys now sees things among churches 
that he will use now to exhort and encourage other congregations. And that's what Paul is going to do from the beginning here. Paul is going to give you an example. He's going to begin and end our time today with an example, with an exhortation in the middle. He's going to give you an example in the beginning, an example in the end. And then he's going to talk to the church about how they ought to respond to the examples that they see. And the first example that Paul is going to use is an example of a group of churches from Macedonia. Now, where we are in Corinth is in the southern part of Greece. Macedonia is in the northern part. You have churches like Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, all different sort of churches that are just north of where Corinth is. The churches in the north are in a place that has been ransacked by the Romans, that has faced significant poverty and difficulty and persecution for standing for their faith. So if you read the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll find out that the Thessalonian, the bleh, say it again, that the Thessalonian church, I got to slow down, the Thessalonian church is standing for Christ when things are difficult. So much so that they think they've missed God coming back for his people because they're experiencing such massive persecution. When Paul writes the Philippians, he talks to them about the difficulty that they're experiencing in their culture and in their time and that he himself is experiencing. So when Paul sits down to move into talking to the Corinthian church here, he's going to use an example of what these other churches are experiencing. And he's going to use it to display something, to show the Corinthians something that they need to get right, that they need to reorder in their heart. So he begins saying, I want you to know something. I need to tell you something about some people. Look at the remainder of the verse. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God that has been given among the churches. Paul, when he plants the gospel message, preaches the by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, gospel message. And when people respond, as we've seen in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says they are responding to the right message. And the people respond saying that is the true gospel. And so Paul says, here are these churches in the Macedonian region, and they have responded. And how I know they've responded is what I'll explain in a minute. But Paul begins by saying this is a community that has started because of the grace of God. Because God chose to save them. So it starts that we don't have a church because we're all obedient. Amen? We have a church based upon the grace of God poured out for us in Jesus Christ. We don't get together and sing songs and hymns about the law. We get together and our lungs are filled and joy characterizes our faces because we sing about somebody who fulfilled the law on our behalf and extended his graceful forgiveness to us. Right? So Paul says, this church is just like you, Corinthians. This church was started because of the grace of God, just like you responded to the grace of God as well. So you have something in common with them. You have a common source for why your church exists. The grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, here's what I want you to see. He's going to use the Macedonian church as an example. And he's going to give you three things, real easy. He's going to talk about when they give. He's going to talk about, uh, number two, how they gave. And number three, he's going to talk about what they gave. All right? Look at verse two. Let's look at when they gave. 
We want you to know about the grace that was given among the churches, verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction. What kind of a day was this church having? They were in a severe test of affliction. Now, affliction is the Greek word that means pressure. They are facing pressure from the outside. And is it easy pressure or severe pressure? Well, it's severe pressure. So much so that Paul will call it a severe test of affliction. This is something that the church is experiencing at that time. And Paul is going to use a word that he's going to close our time with that is one of the two words that the Greek uses for test. Often, one of them is used of the word temptation. And it'll talk about something that incites something in us. But the other word that the Greek uses is this word here for test, which means to reveal something. So Paul will use it when he talks about Timothy, and he'll say, Timothy is my true servant. You know of his proven worth. Paul has used it even in this book. Earlier in, the, in, the, um, in his writing, back in chapter 2, where Paul says, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So here's affliction on the outside, pressuring this church in a severe way. And what Paul is saying is this pressure, this test, this affliction that is happening is going to reveal something about what is happening in the heart of this church. Would you agree that when life turns up the heat, you start to find out who you are? Maybe that's too convicting. Maybe when life turns up the heat, you find out who other people are? Right? Yeah. See, amen to that. Yeah, we find out who they are when the heat gets turned up. Not me. I'm pure on the inside. Right? But when circumstances and affliction and difficulty happen, it starts to reveal what's going on the inside. So Paul starts saying, they're not giving in an easy time. They're facing a severe test of affliction. And when they experience a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... Do you know nowhere in the New Testament is a Christian's joy ever tied to circumstances? Never. Never one place does any Christian writer ever say, we're on the beach of Charleston and an abundance of joy exploded in my heart. We're in Bali on vacation and I have an abundance of joy. It's literally a Greek word that means super abundance. Way more. I mucho. In an abundance of joy, and watch this, the contrasts are incredible in this one verse. You have a severe test of affliction that's gonna show you something about what's in their heart. You've got an abundance of joy. How did they feel? And then number three, you have their financial situation. They were in their extreme poverty. It's literally down in the depths poverty. The Macedonian churches were not wealthy churches. The Macedonian churches were struggling financially at the depths of the poverty that they experienced. So what happened? Affliction from the outside, joy on the inside, financial lack resulted in an overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. All through this passage, Paul is not going to mention percentage once. He's not going to mention an amount that the Macedonians gave once. 
what Paul is going to do is show you the heart of the Macedonians. The amount really doesn't even matter to Paul. In fact, Paul is going to be surprised at what they gave. So their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, you may have a Bible. If you have an NASB Bible, the, the word for generosity may be the word liberality. And it's not actually the word uh, generosity, which means a lot. The word generosity, or the word here in the Greek, is something that Paul has used to talk about his own conscience and his own convictions in ministry. All the way back in... Uh, Chapter 1, he, Paul said this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we believed in the world with simplicity. It's that word. It's the word haplotes in the Greek, which means a singleness of mind. So this church had severe testing and affliction on the outside, an abundance of joy on the inside, virtually no financial resources whatsoever, but Paul said they had a singleness of mind that characterized their giving. Their giving had in mind a single priority that was most important to them. So their response of giving, though it might not have been a lot, came out of a place of profound personal priority. There's one thing that was controlling this church, one thing that determined how and why they give. It wasn't their circumstances. It was their joy because of grace. You with me so far? That's when they gave. Let's look at how they gave. Verse three, for they gave according to their means. What does that mean? It means proportionate giving, right? Paul took into account the job they have, their level of education, their relative tax bracket. They looked at what they uh, could have been giving and how they ought to have been given. He looked at the kind of homes they lived in. He looked at the kind of people he was preaching to. He looked at the jobs they had. He looked at all of that and took all of that into account and said, here's a church that gave proportionately. Okay, I'm with you so far, Paul. They gave according to their means, as I can testify. But they didn't just do that. They didn't just give what they could or what was appropriate or what everybody would have assumed was reasonable for this people to give. Not only that, they gave beyond their means. That means disproportionate giving and not in the wrong direction, right? Super abundant, wealth of generosity, this church gave beyond their means. Now, if they gave beyond their means, it means they gave an unreasonable amount. Arguably, they could have given an unwise amount, maybe even a reckless amount. This church gave in such a way that was beyond their means. Well, yeah, but you've got Paul. Who wouldn't support Paul's ministry, right? You've got one of the apostles, somebody who the Lord appeared to personally, somebody who has taught in your churches. Of course we need to give to Paul. Paul, it must be that you are uh, using your influence in the lives of these people. It must be that you've got a lot of respect in the churches that you go to. You don't have respect in the Corinthian church so much, right, Paul? But you must have respect up there to, to get, you must be Paul, you must be a great support raiser. 
And Paul says, no, they gave, look at the remainder of the verse, they gave of their own accord. They made a personal decision. They decided themselves how they were going to give an unreasonable amount, a disproportionate amount that was beyond their means. Look at verse four, begging us earnestly. You know that word begging? Paul used it back in 2 Corinthians chapter five where he says, um, uh, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How forceful is Paul being when he asks people to believe in the gospel? Do you think emotionally it matters? Is he just like, well, I preach the gospel and put my hands in my pockets. They're gonna respond. Paul leverages every amount of intellectual, moral, relational, spiritual, emotional weight toward begging and imploring people to be reconciled to God. It matters to Paul. And Paul uses the same word here, where this church gave a disproportionate above and beyond amount to come alongside begging Paul, begging us earnestly for the what? You know what that word favor is? It's the word grace. So this church comes to Paul and says, Paul, I've got to be involved in this. We must give to this. Why? Because there's, it's, you have given us the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's an opportunity that we're going to call grace from God. Now imagine for a second, what are the things in our lives that we would beg to give $1,000 toward? And this church says, we cannot, Paul, we got to give. We must give. Paul, let us give. Paul, where are the bags that we can put the money and the support? Because we so believe in, Paul, what you're doing and how the gospel message changes people and how it created in us new spiritual life. We must be involved in this support. We must get alongside. So what, now, do you see the tension that Paul is creating in the life of the Corinthian church by using the example of the Macedonian church? What has been the problem in the Corinthian church? Paul says, our heart is wide open to you. Will you open your heart to us? We care about you. We love you a whole lot. Will you respond? And Paul is showing you in the life of the Macedonian church, they care so much about the gospel going forward. They love God's apostle and, so, and they have so experienced the grace of God that they can't wait to give to what is happening through my ministry. Do you see the contrast? Begging us earnestly for the favor, for the grace, that the grace is the opportunity of taking part. Literally, the Greek is koinonia. It means the fellowship. This church has giving, watch this, this church is giving to people they've never seen and never met. And they're trusting their gifts to be put into the hand of God's faithful apostle to meet the needs of saints in another region, in another place, all throughout Paul's ministry. And they long and beg to be involved there, to take part in the relief of the saints. They want to serve the needs of Christians in other places that they've never seen, they've never talked to, but that Paul raises up a need and said the saints need help. Well, where? Where do I sign the check? How do I, much do I give? I'm going to give disproportionately above and beyond what is totally reasonable for me to give. I'm so excited. 
So let's see what they give. And you're going to be surprised here in verse 5 with what they give. And this, well, what is this? This is what you go back to in verse 3. Disproportionate, unreasonable, above and beyond their means kind of giving. This kind of giving, not as we expected. Well, I'll bet. Paul experienced this church and their unreasonable, disproportionate, even unwise kind of giving. And Paul says, I was blown away. I had no idea this church would give like that. I had no idea. One commentator says that they took joy in robbing themselves. So Paul says, not as we expected. But what are they giving? Watch this. Watch what Paul says they gave. They gave what? Themselves. See, the question when it comes to giving and to money, money is an indicator of the things that are important to you, right? Money is an indicator of influence and status and wealth in our culture. Money allows you great amounts of freedom or minimal amounts of money restricts your freedoms in our culture, right? There are certain things you can't go to. There are certain things you cannot see. You can't go to that Spice Girls concert. They still go? Spice Girls? You know what I'm talking about, Joel. There are certain places I can go and can't go. Certain freedoms it allows me and doesn't allow me. And the question when it comes to dealing with finances or dealing with our money is if I follow the trail of money in my life, what am I saying about the things that I'm giving my money to? Well, I'm saying that they're important to me. This is Jesus' whole point. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where you invest and sacrifice and give, there your heart will be. There will be the place that your heart worships. There your heart exists. The heart is used all throughout the New Testament as being the center of our life. The foundation out of which we make esteem decisions. This is wonderful, so I'll give to it. This is distasteful, so I won't. But the question for Paul is deeper than that. And Paul recognizes that the foundation and the fount out of which this church gave was that first and foremost, they believed that it's not what they have that is God's. It's who they are that is God's. They gave themselves. God, this is, the, this is the issue with stewarding our money. Do you believe that all of who you are is God's? Do you believe that all of what you have is God's? Do you believe that when we bury you at the end of your life, you are taking nothing with you of what you have? Nothing. We don't fill the casket. We just put you in there, shut it, and we give all your stuff away. Remember Ecclesiastes? First, they gave themselves, God, what do you want of me? God, all of who I am is yours. However you want me to steward with the opportunities and gifts and abilities and finances that you've put into my life, God, all of that is yours. So the first step is saying that everything I have is God's. All of who I am is God's. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So it's another moment where they recognize this is God's true apostle with God's true gospel message and all of who we are is God's. All of what we have is God's and therefore we are going to pray and ask God where God wants us to put his stuff. 
And where God wants us to put his stuff is in the hands of his true apostle. Now, do you see how brilliant Paul is in addressing the Corinthian church? Isn't this wise? Why doesn't he just give you verse one and go, hey, you ever heard of the Macedonians? They're way more generous than you. All right, chapter nine. He's just, he, he keeps highlighting their heart, doesn't he? He keeps highlighting, here are what people do who have been gra- gripped by the grace of God. Now, look at verse six. Accordingly. What a great adverb. Isn't that great? Oh, man, what do you mean accordingly, Paul? That means like they did, right? You ought to do, right? Like their values should be your values. Accordingly. Therefore, here's this example of the Macedonian church. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Now, Titus had spent at least one other visit going to the Corinthians and beginning gathering uh, a financial gift. Paul will talk about this in the next chapter. But Titus is saying that his job when he was there before began this giving project to be able to meet the needs of the saints, to care for Christians in other places who are facing uh, dire financial circumstances. This is, there's probably a, a picture of this in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church is also a poor church. They have the apostles, but they don't, they're not financially well off. That when Pentecost happened, you had a lot of people who were in town from all throughout where the Jews were scattered and they were sojourners. They were travelers. They didn't have a lot of money. And the gospel hits and all of these people leave and the church is in a place of great financial difficulty. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So keep your finger there in in 2 Corinthians and go back with me to 1 Corinthians 16 and and you'll see the direction that Paul gave And this was work that Paul did all throughout his missionary journeys to make sure that the churches that were impoverished and facing difficulty were taken care of. So he appealed to all these Gentile churches to give back to their Jewish brethren who were also believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul had plans to come and gather up the gifts from the Corinthian church. But what happened? You had false teachers come in. You had a confrontation happen. Paul had to retreat. Titus had to deliver the severe letter. Titus responded and said, hey, the church listened to you. But the church had not finished doing the instructions you gave them back in 1 Corinthians 16. So flip back to 2 Corinthians. So what's Paul's admonition to this representative of Paul and the apostolic group, the apostolic teachers? He said, hey, we're urging Titus. This is an area that we need to finish. We need to complete. We need to keep being faithful here. 
And Titus, you need to represent us in this way. So we're going to urge you that as you've started it, so you should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7. Now watch Paul's wisdom here. This is great. But as you excel in everything. It's the same word that Paul used of overflowing in referring to the Macedonians. It overflowed in generosity. Now watch what Paul does. Paul says, as you overflow in everything, church. In faith, their belief and trust that God can work wonders. In speech, which is the logos, the word, the preaching that Paul had given. And therefore the knowledge that's a result of that preaching. That you excel also in all earnestness. Isn't that what Paul had said back in chapter 7? Look at 7 verse 12. Just move your finger up. He says that in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Remember that? Where is this church's heart? Do they have a desire to obey and a desire to respond to the word? And Paul says they do. You have an earnestness to respond to what God is saying. And, and also in our love for you. you may, the commentators go back and forth on this. Is this our love that we have demonstrated that now lives in you? Or is it the church's response to Paul? It's probably the former. In that Paul is saying our love has been contagious towards you. That our love now lives in you. The same love that we have for the brethren, the same love that we have for God, the same love that we have for Christ, it exists in you. Now watch, Paul appeals to their situation, doesn't he? He doesn't just appeal, he gives you an example in the Macedonians, but then he tells you what he knows about the Corinthian church. Just as you excel in everything. Now, what does this church have Keep your finger again in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 1 and see how Paul describes this church. First Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 4. And Paul, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, talks again about grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does the Corinthian church have an abundance of spiritual resources? Say yes. They do. They're enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Come back to 2 Corinthians. They have a super abundance of spiritual riches, a super abundance of spiritual gifts. And now what Paul is going to say back in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7, as you excel in everything and all of these things that I've seen, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. Did you see what Paul just did? Paul just put giving and responding to the needs of others on the same level as speech, knowledge, earnestness. 
Do you have areas of your life that are underdeveloped in your Christian life? Yeah, see, both of you said yes. The rest of you are like, I don't know, I'm a 95, I'm a 97, I'm a... Yeah, we all do, don't we? We all have ways in which we struggle for the sanctification process to take root and produce fruit, don't we? I'm good at two or three things, and I'm bad at about 87 other ones. And Paul says, here's this church who has an abundance of spiritual resources in their faith, that's pretty important, in their preaching, that's pretty important too. In the things that they know, yeah, that's pretty important. What about their earnestness? They're hot for the Lord, but they haven't quite rounded the corner when it comes to how they handle their money. They're not there yet. We want you to excel in this grace. Now, grace throughout, grace is used in the book of 2 Corinthians 10 different times in chapters 8 and 9. Of the 16, it's used throughout the whole book. And sometimes it refers to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which you'll see in a second. Sometimes it refers to the response of people who've been changed by grace on the inside. That's what Paul has said, this act of grace, which is the giving. Sometimes it's referred to as the gift itself. Sometimes, as we've already seen in the Macedonians, that it's the opportunity that God has given them is called God's grace. So God's grace informs everything about this conversation. There's no expression of faithfulness in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that is disconnected from the grace of God. All the way down to money decisions. I'd like to have more conversations about growing in my faith. I'd like to have more conversations about growing in my knowledge. I'd like to have more conversations about growing in the things that I need to know in ways that I might be able to teach others. I'd also like to grow in my spiritual fervor. Would you like to grow in grace when it comes to your money? And Paul says, you should want to. Paul says, you should excel here too. Now, verse eight. I say this not as a command. Isn't that great? When we do membership interviews and people join our church, we don't say, all right, it's $500 for each of you. We never give a percentage. When we look at new leaders to bring them in as elders, I never ask a percentage of their yearly income. That's not the point. And Paul knows that. Paul could make this chapter two verses. You ever heard of the Macedonians? Man, they give way more than you, up at another 38%. All right, on to the next church. Paul doesn't do that. Because law doesn't ultimately motivate us. It doesn't. This year, it's 16%. Next year, it better be 18. And Paul says, I'm not going to command you. I'm not, all through this, Paul doesn't give a number. He never says how much the Macedonians gave. He just lifts up their heart. He's not going to tell the Corinthians how much they're, they're meant to give. He doesn't give them a percentage. He doesn't give an amount. He doesn't even necessarily compare the amount to the churches in Macedonia because an amount to the Corinthians is different than an amount to the Macedonians. Why? They gave out of extreme poverty. Well, the, the, second, the Corinthian church could write a check and it could be equal. But that doesn't mean that Paul has gotten their heart. I say this not as a command, but to prove. You know, remember what we started with? Remember the two words for testing? One is a temptation. One is to evaluate what is genuine and real. Paul uses the same word here. I say this to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also, what? Genuine. How much should I give? I don't know. Let's see if your heart is the same as the hearts of people who've been gripped by the grace of God. 
Let's see if you respond the way the Macedonians respond. Not in an amount, not in suffering, not even in a percentage. But is your response the same as people whose hearts are gripped by the grace of God? That's what Paul wants to know. And he can't do it with law. I will not command it. All New Testament giving is voluntary. We never pass a plate. All we have is boxes that you can put money into that are really hard to find because they're brown and they match the brown. You don't even know where they are. We have people all the time ask us, how do I give? Find a little box on the wall. It's painted brown just like everything else. If you want it bad enough, you can find it. Because giving is voluntary. So, but we've got to ask ourselves some money questions, right? Do you feel the the tension in your heart in a passage like this? Do you feel the difficulty that this is raising in the kind of money decisions that we make? So if Paul doesn't say this as a command, but he says this to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, I need to ask, is my love for God genuine? Is my response all the way down to my money coming from a place of genuine love of God, love of his word, love of his grace. Is that where my giving comes from? I had a a friend of mine I used to raise support when I was doing ministry years ago. He was a guy, I've met a couple people in my life who have had what I would call the spiritual gift of generosity or giving. They had that ministry of check writing. And uh, he would not give on Sundays and he would only give in cash. And what he would do is he would go to the church when the church was dark and the lights were off and he would go to one of the giving boxes in the room when he was all by himself. And the only reason I knew this is because he kind of mentioned it in passing. And he would take his money and he'd go into the church and he'd go into one of the giving boxes and he'd put his money in there in cash. Now, if you know, if you give cash, we can't track it. We don't know who it comes from. We don't know who snuck into the church on a Thursday and shoved 20s into the giving boxes. And that's how he liked it. Because he gave from a place of genuine love of God. He didn't need the tax break. He didn't want the tax break. He wanted to make sure that his love was genuine. And Paul says, I say this to prove that your love is also genuine. So, is my love genuine? What are my spiritual priorities? Do I love the gospel and love advancing God's purposes on the earth? I always get nervous when I go to do my taxes. Do you know why? Because I, I go to a tax guy who doesn't go to our church, but he is a Christian. And I always have that nagging question in my mind. Would my accountant who does my taxes say Steve's treasure isn't on this earth? If we scrubbed out the names and you looked at my tax return, I always wonder, am, to my accountant, to my tax guy, what are they called? CPA. To my CPA, would he say his treasure's not here? He doesn't value things on this earth. His treasure is elsewhere. Number three, we need to ask, what do we sacrifice for financially? What are the ways in which we're willing to take the loss and give sacrificially to something else? Sacrificially to God's purposes. Sacrificially to put myself in debt that I can give to that. What are the things that we sacrifice for? Where do we eagerly give? Where do we beg to be involved in God's purposes? Are we growing in our giving? 
The same ambition we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The same ambition we have to let all of our life be sanctified for God's purposes. That I want to grow in the way I use my tongue and the way I think and the way I speak and the way that I have courage when I talk about the truth of God. Am I growing in my giving? Now, in all that, we can evaluate all that, right? All of you who are engineers are doing the math and are trying to figure out where we land on all of those heart questions. But what if you don't really know where to start? What if, you know, you look at this passage and you go, gosh, I'm not the, the Macedonians. So what do I do? Why do I, how do I get a heart? How do I get a heart like the Macedonians? Because I think there's, there's at least that question in this passage, isn't there? That we want to have hearts that are so gripped by the grace of God. And, and Paul, in his brilliance, shows you how that happens. He started with something that the Corinthian church didn't know, right? They didn't know what was happening in the Macedonian churches. And Paul showed them an example of a church that's gripped by the grace of God. And Paul's going to end showing you and talking to you about what this church knows. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, grace is no longer the opportunity. Grace is not even the giving. Paul roots the motivation of the human heart for giving and sacrificial giving and eager sacrificial giving in the grace of Jesus Christ. He's reminding the church of something that they have forgotten. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And you know it's not financial poverty, right? That's not the issue that Paul is making. Paul is drawing a contrast from what Jesus talks about in John 17, about, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the world existed. He's talking about what the author of Hebrews says when the author of Hebrews says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the one who was infinitely wealthy drawing near to those who were at the depths of spiritual poverty. And the key to having your heart transformed, the key to living out of a heart that has been gripped by grace is not to look at the metrics. It's not so much to look at your money. It's not to look at the percentages. The key is to look at Christ. The key is to meditate on it, meditate on what it cost Christ to draw near to those who had no spiritual riches whatsoever. Because the whole point of chapter nine is in three little bitty words right in the middle. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What, is, what are you worth to God? What is he willing to pay 
for you. To bring you into his family, to forgive your sins, to give you eternal, spiritual riches and wealth for all eternity. So that no matter what you give here, no matter what your financial situation is here, no matter what your financial losses are here, Christ has come to pay a debt that you could never pay. To bring you back into right relationship with God. And the only way a church is ever going to be generous, the only way that you are going to be able to battle the temptations for security and comfort and certainty about your future based upon your financial position is to look at Christ and look at what he gave up to be with you. This is why grace revolutionizes giving. This is why grace revolutionizes a church. This is why grace gives you courage to be able to give sacrificially, earnestly, disproportionately. It's because of what Christ has given to you. So Paul doesn't leave this conversation giving a command. He doesn't leave it with law. He says, consider that Christ was rich, and for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we prepare ourselves to remember what it cost you to come into relationship with us. We remember the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We remember the eternal and infinite descent that he took from heaven's eternal glory to be incarnated with us, to experience life in a sinful world with us, to walk among not just the financially poor, but the spiritually poor, and to go to the cross and to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And not only that, to give of his eternal and infinite spiritual riches to bring us into your family. To take away our poverty and our spiritual inability and to give us infinite, inestimable spiritual wealth. Father, would that grace so grip us here today? Would we live out of the massive wealth of riches that we have received in Jesus Christ? And would the power of grace uproot the idols of security and comfort and greed that live in our hearts? Father, captivate us with your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.